This is your world, Dalkus Kulborg, at the arbitration station. And in Amsterdam, it's Brian Kotick. Yeah, all my windows are closed. I, I thought I'd leave mine open for a, some, a local flavor and <laughs> listen to, to Copenhagen in the relative heat wave. I guess our listeners in Dubai and you know, South Africa would beg no to differ, but it's really, really warm in Copenhagen. It's really warm here. We just biked around the city uh, for about two or three hours, so um, we really got to enjoy the heat wave. I'm pretty stoked about it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's such a cliche that we keep talking about the weather, but that that's what you do in this part of the world. I remember when we went to Sydney for the uh, thing, initially you were a bit annoyed, right? It seemed like you were annoyed because I was so stoked from, from the weather. It was so nice coming from Sweden, and I couldn't shut up about how consistent and good the weather was. And you were like, man, I'm from California. Right, this out. is expected. This is just normal weather. <laughs> but that's what you have to do. Your default is cold, and so you get excited when it's hot, and I'm the other way around. I get just get mad. So I guess I need to be more positive. And also, it changes, and like the northern hemisphere, way much. So it differs from day to day. So you're interested in the weather. You keep looking at the weather, and you keep talking about the weather. Whereas California or like Sydney, you get more more or less the exact same thing day after day. You're like sun again. Yeah. Uh, Easiest job in LA is the weatherman. Ah, old saying. So what's up with your your career development these days? Yeah, I didn't time that very well, I'm afraid. It's the, the best, the, like, speaking of the weather, the, the past 10 days or so have been amazing weather-wise, and I've been focusing, uh, supposedly been focusing on my dissertation because I'm submitting uh, a draft version of the, the vast majority of my, my dissertation on Friday to uh, Stefan Schill, a German professor in, in Amsterdam, actually, where you are right now. Oh. He's coming to he's coming to Uppsala in a few weeks to, to shoot me down. Hopefully, I've instructed him to be very critical so that I can spend then the the summer and the early fall building everything up from scratch again after he, he's done his... Tears it apart. His, his job, yeah. So that's what I've been doing. I've, I've been uh, thinking of uh, my dissertation and writing... Um, parts of it as well very actively unfortunately given the weather but now i mean since i moved to copenhagen i'm like a few minutes away from from the ocean so i, I actually spend most of the afternoons just either running or sleeping by the water tough life my friend joel dahlquist cool boy yeah but then i'm an early bird as you know and i also yeah. spend most of the evenings writing so i just get a few hours in Joel wakes up what very you? early. You, you are not in Amsterdam for any professional reason, I guess. No, my parents took a cruise and they ended up in Amsterdam, so I'm here to show them around the city. They've never been here before, so I flew down just to uh, show them around, and I took some time off from work, so I'm enjoying this, even though, you know, Acmea is just rearing its ugly head left, right, and center, so there is work to be done, uh, even though I'm over here. <laughs> Wherever you go, Akmea keeps following you. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Babadook. Have you seen that Australian movie? Speaking of Sydney, uh, it's an Australian oh. horror movie, and he just goes like, Babadook. And that's what I feel like Akmea sounds like. 
last time around it was the rosebud of your life. <laughs> yeah. everywhere. Could you imagine? Do you remember Acme? I used to be called Eureka. Yeah. It was a different corporate entity. So initially we called the case Eureka, I think before it even went to the to the courts when it was an arbitration. That would have been a different life if it was actually a, the Eureka case. It has a better ring to it, I think. Yeah, you can make a lot more puns out of it. Like, Eureka, no! Yeah. <laughs> you would have loved that so much more. Than yeah, I would have. I would have. Achmea. But who do we have so on today? We are still... Yeah, exactly. I Sorry, I was two seconds ahead of you. We yeah. are still... Um, focusing on discussions in Sydney. And we have a good setup today because we have one academic, one practitioner, and one secretary general. There aren't that many. It's a good title, secretary general, but there aren't that many secretaries general in the world. Do you think they have a a club for secretaries general? They should. They really should. We, we've had at least, we have two we've had before on the podcast, Annette Magnusson from the SEC and Roman Sicko from from the Russian Arbitration Association, but now we have Meg Kinnear, who is, of course, if you're interested in investment treaty arbitration, basically the Secretary General, who was kind enough to talk to us about ICSID and ICSID's role in reforming investment treaty arbitration. And we also managed to sneak in a few questions about her role in the whole process. Yes. And then... She was kind. Very kind of her. And that was, a, I mean, that was the end of day one. And we were a bit tired, but we were both so excited for this interview that it kind of gave us that second wave of energy. Right. But then we also, uh, on this episode, talked to Dr. Benjamin Hayward, or Ben, because he's Australian. So I, I, I don't think he uses his full right. title or name <laughs> that frequently. Who is a, uh, a listener? Uh, he, we've been in touch frequently about different things we talked about on the podcast, and and one of the things I think maybe the first time we contacted us it was when you, you Brian, talked about uh, a case you've been involved in where you had uh, an applicable law or a choice of law discussion with a case that had something to do with California. Well, you, I'm, I'm already forgetting this, but this was like six months ago or something that exactly. we, we talked to Ben about this, and he proposed that we should do something more. Uh, serious or comprehensive on conflicts of laws in international arbitration because it happens to be his topic or his research focus. So when we went to Sydney, we managed to to get him. I don't think he was formerly a speaker at ICA, but since he is based at Monash, 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 problem. Anyway, he is in Australia normally, uh, and he was also present in Sydney. So we, we took the chance to talk to him about uh, conflicts of laws in international arbitration, which also reminds me that he has just published a book, which we talk about uh, briefly in, in the segment, um, which I highly recommend, uh, Conflict of Laws and Arbitral Discretion, the Closest Connection Test, which is basically about how arbitrators find uh, the law applicable to the dispute and it's been published by oxford university press and had i been a more uh, ambitious person i would have been able now to give our listeners a 20 percent discount code but i uh, from from oxford university press but we will get that in like a day or two so i will update the text accompanying yes. this episode and we'll also talk about it on the next episode because we have more oup authors coming up so I think our ambition for the future is every time we talk to somebody who's written a book, we'll secure some sort of deal for our listeners if they're interested in buying the book. That should be our goal. Definitely. Our last um, 
interview is with Hugh Carlson, who is a director of practice and senior associate at Three Crowns, based out of Washington, D.C. Um, and we talked to him about cybersecurity. Um, he has been involved in a lot of a lecture series based on cybersecurity at universities, and he's really tried to tackle this issue. And he sits down and talks to us. I mean, he even talked about it at ICA. Um, so he sits down and gives us the inside scoop on what we can expect when discussing cybersecurity issues in arbitration. He has, I think, maybe second only to Taylor St. John, the best radio voice of all the people we've ever interviewed. Oh, yeah. Very, in, in the same sort of vein as Taylor, is a good NPR voice. <laughs> we should go to voice lessons, Joel. Oh, yeah. Radio all right. voice I lessons. Guess of, all the, of all the things we can do better, that should be on the list, but maybe not at the top of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's going to be a great episode. And as you said, it's very diverse. So we have something for everyone, a little potpourri, if you will. And first out is the person we all think about when we think about uh, Secretary General, Meg Kinnear from Exit. So obviously what we wanted to talk about primarily is, is ICSID's role in reforming yeah. ISDS and, yeah. and also to, to a certain extent your role as uh, Secretary General sure. um, because you are involved, it seems, and you just chaired the, a panel that was talking about substantive mm-hmm. reform. Exactly. What, what is the role of ICSID or how, how do you view the role of ICSID in this context? You're very much, of course, in the, in the center of the business. Yeah, um, especially uh, in terms of the working group three process that are in Citral and all of those kinds of issues. We see our role very much as one of providing information. I mean, we've, we've done about 70% of all of the cases. So we have a lot of information on the ground as to how this works. And so we draw a very clear line. Obviously, the policy choice is for states. And we have 153 member states, and many of them have different views. So we're very careful not to tread on that territory. But I feel pretty strongly that, at the very least, whatever decisions they make should be informed by how things actually do or don't happen. And so our role is to try and provide that kind of background, answer those questions, and make sure that the context is clear. And then the actual decision, which way to go, is up to the states. But for us, it's to provide sort of the factual content and the -the on-the-ground content. And within ICSID, how active are the states? How much state input is there? I know that the Administrative Council meets once a year? Yeah, the Administrative Council meets once a year. Um, states uh, states are increasingly active, and I think not surprisingly, states become more active when a case starts against them. Obviously, if you've never had a case, it's not something you need to dedicate time or resources to, but then when a case comes up, we often get the question, all right, tell us what this is all about, etc. Um, but I think just generally, because of the environment we're in, because we're hearing these discussions, not just on Citral, but on TAD, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of just general discussion about this in the environment, states are much more active now than they were 10, 15 years ago. And certainly we're going through our own amendment process right now, and one of the big things we were pushing from the beginning is that states get, or at least have the opportunity to be engaged. So we've gone to huge lengths to basically contact every state and say, can you give us somebody who will be our contact here? 
So we know for sure that you know the proposals, that you have a chance to ask questions, to understand them fully, and if you have any particular position that you can relay it on behalf of your government. So we've made a big effort to pull together a group of state officials. And so far it's going very well. I think I have more than 75 countries that have named one or more persons. And uh, we have been sort of sending periodic discussions or updates on what we're discussing so that they are know what's on the agenda. So Are these going to be recorded discussions that you can then refer to? The, um, dis- the, pra- <laughs> the practicing lawyer is asking. Yeah, exactly. Will there be travel? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, uh, the discussions themselves are not going to be recorded. Um, our process right now is we went out and we said if states have any particular um, ideas about what the scope of this amendment process should be, let us know. We took all of those, we made a similar request for public input, we took those and you know for about the past five years at ICSID we've had a running list when we see something, oh maybe that should be amended. Now our list is probably much more technical and nuts and bolts than others, but we took all of those, put them together and we've been working on a working paper and our goal is to get this out early August of this year and then we're having a consultation. We've invited all our member states at the end of September. That's not going to be an on-the-record consultation. That'll basically be explaining what the proposals are, answering immediate questions. But we've asked states if they will then, if they have written comments or any feedback, get that to us by the end of December 2018. Uh, and that we will ask for permission to, to post on the web, and that'll be up to, up to the states. Uh, but we will ask for that permission and post whatever they are agreeing yeah. to posting. Interesting. Yeah. Are you looking exclusively on the arbitration rules, no. or is the exit convention is also on the table? No, not the exit convention. Um, exit convention, as you know, takes a hundred percent vote to amend. So we made the decision that the first thing is the exit rules. But we have also said, I think, unlike in the past when everyone said, don't even try to climb that mountain because it's not possible. We've said, in fact, uh, the first step is exit rules, but we are, as we go through the working paper, we are flagging places where you might want to make a change, but it will require a convention change. So at the end of this, I mean, there will be a list of things, uh, maybe from sort of small to huge, uh, about convention change and I'm hoping that once we get the amendments in place for the rules that we'll have sort of created a working habit and a group of people and an understanding of why you might want to do go farther on something in the rules but in fact the convention's holding you back and why you might want to think about the convention. So we're starting with rule amendment but not just the arbitration rules we have started we've got the additional uh, the uh, administrative and financial rules the initiation rules, uh, and the additional facility rules, and the conciliation rules. So we're doing all sets of overhaul. Yeah, (laughs) in a project that's getting bigger and bigger every day, you know. Are you comfortable at this stage uh, in in telling us what might be those convention changes, depending on, of course, what happens? Convention changes or rule change? Convention change, both, of course, but I think the the rule changes have been published quite widely. Yeah, exactly. On convention changes, I'll give you a couple of ideas, and who knows what happens, but... um, for example, uh, right now states when they join ICSID can name four arbitrators and four conciliators. One of the proposals, and I think one of the easiest proposals, would be 
have each state able to name more people. You have that many more cases. We are all talking about wanting diversity. Well, here's a great way to have more people at least in the potential pool. So there's one fairly easy would one. Would make your job somewhat easier as well, I would I imagine. I thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then um, go from sort of probably what might be the easiest to perhaps some of the harder ones. Uh, I think probably one of the most often voiced concerns is the whole question of the process of challenging arbitrators at ICSID. Um, it's the process where the two unchallenged arbitrators are supposed to decide the challenge of their colleague and um, it is not the norm in arbitration and I think a number of arbitrators have said they don't feel comfortable with this and so there would be one that I think is certainly worth looking at. Uh, I don't know where states come out on it but there's sort of two examples that are worthwhile. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and all, then moving on a little bit to, to you, you've been at the job for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and before that, you were uh, a state lawyer, you worked for, for the Canadian government, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, we, let, let me tell you this, because I know you probably met Taylor St. John, who, yes, who's written a book. Who's yeah. written the history of Exit, exactly. exactly. She Fantastic. was She was on the, the podcast at the beginning of this season in a very mm -hmm. spirited interview, uh, talking a lot about Aaron Brokers, and uh, well, notwithstanding the fact that she seems to be in love with him, <laughs> he, 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 he seems to have been, of course, instrumental to the background of Exit. Absolutely. And the first Secretary General. Absolutely. What, what do you think he would say about what you're doing right now and what has been going on over the last 50 or so years exactly. at Exit. Exactly. No, it's interesting. When I first got to Exit, you still heard people say, well, Mr. Broca said, or his successor, uh, Ibrahim Shihata, was also a huge figure in, in Exit. So anyhow, I often heard sort of Mr. Shihata did this because of this, and there was all sorts of ancient so institutional war. memory going exactly. back decades. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Broca's would have just been probably surprised in particular surprised at the extent to which it's become uh, an instrument that's used in treaties as opposed to contract. Right. Um, certainly it was always envisioned that it could apply to treaties, but I don't think anyone expected that that would be the majority of the cases. I think he would have been thrilled because it is, you know, it's proved itself as a very useful mechanism. So I think he would have been delighted. I don't know how he would have handled a lot of these <laughs> challenges, but you know, it's, we still go back and look at some of the things he's written, and it's incredible how much foresight and you know things that you think they might never have thought of. There was reasoning behind it, and really solid reasoning. And you have a problem, you think, oh, there'll be nothing there in the historical record to send me in a particular direction, and then you read some of the things he wrote, and oh, they thought about it, but decided not to do this mm. because and it's actually quite amazing so what about your role as secretary general has that evolved over the years and how was that not only within your term there but also with the previous secretary general yeah i'm i was fortunate to be the first what we're calling standalone secretary general essentially in the beginning when nobody knew how many cases there would be they had uh, the individual working on exit as part of the legal group for the world bank and as the cases grew, 
they finally came to the decision in 2008 that we would have a standalone secretary general on the assumption that there was enough to fully occupy somebody. And yes, yeah, yeah. they were right. <laughs> well, um, so uh, the job has changed in the sense that it is a standalone job as opposed to part of the legal group now. But it's also changed immensely just, I mean, first of all, in terms of the volume of cases. It's absolutely extraordinary, and so you have had to create, and I was lucky to pick up from Antonio Parra, who did an amazing job, but we've had to really create a whole system. So um, in my time, our staff has doubled. I think I started with 34 people, and there's now 70. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, but, you know, when I arrived, people were just running around, just trying to sort of get the next thing done. It was extraordinary how much was on everybody's plate. So we have uh, increased the number of staff. We've gone into a lot of case management tools, trying to use technology properly. We started to do a lot more, I guess you'd call it technical assistance or training. But this is something that um, there's just, you, there's never enough of technical assistance. And in particular states, once they realize that's available, a lot of states have been asking us, can you come and tell us what this is all about? So we've tried to do a lot more of that. Our website has been completely revamped and yeah. made trilingual. Um, we've put in a, sort of a much more, I guess, formal management structure because the more people you have, the more you have to think about those things. You don't want to become a bureaucracy, but it does matter. So I also have now two secretary, uh, two deputies who are wonderful, and we have four teams, and we have um, also a very proficient sort of back office. There's a lot of back office work. I mean, just think about every single case has at least one bank account, to use a, mm -hmm. a phrase, and all of this has to be managed. They're all World Bank escrow accounts. So we've gotten a more formal management structure. Uh, we've made huge efforts to engage states more, and that's been quite successful. Um, in particular, our rosters, we've made an immense effort to go through them and say, who has empty spots, who um, has people on their uh, list who, who you know, they named in 1972, so probably wouldn't be ready to take a case today. Um, <laughs> and, and what is it, what's it like as of today? How, how many <laughs> ballparks do you know are, that are pretty good. not that updated? We made a huge effort, and you know, just last year we had 101 new nominations. Oh, so yeah. it's really working, yeah. but... Um, We've had to do a lot of just explaining to governments what the process is, that this is their right to nominate, uh, and we've put out a lot of information about the kinds of things to think about. And in fact, we put something on our website recently with the kind of criteria, because if you look at the criteria and the rules, if they're quite general, sort of public international law, you know, of good moral character and impartial, period. So <laughs> we sort of put out to give states a better idea of what they're looking for, uh, you know, knows a bit about investment arbitration, knows about public international law, uh, linguistic capacities, all of those things that they might not necessarily think about. Capacity to run a complex arbitration, because um, we are usually appointing presidents, so it matters. Right. And I think that and letters about every six months from me bugging them, which they have, are very successful. I also see now that some states are appointing non-nationals mm -hmm. 
which, which I guess maybe that was always the case and I, I was just misinformed, but I, I, I've taken notice of that and yep. it seems to be a, a trend. <laughs> no, uh, it has always been that you could appoint anyone. It can be a non-national, it can be a national of a state that's not a member of ICSID. And that's one of the things in the, uh, in the web piece that we put out. Uh, some states don't have people who are in this discipline and may want to appoint others. So uh, there's no nationality requirements. So formally the appointment and also the decision on challenges when it ends up at exit is, is made by the president of the World Bank. Um, the situation is uh, if you have, for example, a three-person tribunal and one arbitrator is challenged, then the other two arbitrators are intended to decide unless they are equally divided. If you have a sole arbitrator or a challenge, let's say, to two of the three, that goes to the chair. And if they're equally divided, that goes to the chair. And I think mm, roughly 50-50 end up with the chair as opposed to with the unchallenged arbitrators. And what's the working relationship between you or the secretariat and the secretary general leading the secretariat and uh, the boss? The boss. The, the, the World Bank president who is exactly. for, this is a formal decision maker. Yeah. Uh, well, essentially, I mean, I have a direct reporting relationship to Dr. Kim, who's the current president of the World Bank. So, for example, when a challenge comes along uh, that is for Dr. Kim to decide, we will first let him know the challenge has come. We transmit all the documents, then we will do a, a memorandum basically setting out the considerations, the arguments, and then ultimately a draft uh, decision for his consideration and then brief him and it's his final decision. It's like the SEC Secretariat and the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, it's a very similar Yeah, and process. the PCA as well also I think when they have the Secretariat yeah. and the exactly. uh, President of the PCA. Was, the was the structure of the Secretariat always uh, regional based? I mean, uh, a friend of mine, Celeste Salinas Caro, yeah. is now working there, and she said now she's in this Latin American division. Yeah. Was it always divided? Via I think region? it's not regional as much as language. Okay. Uh, and we're really lucky. We have a lot of people who can speak multiple languages, so it's not strictly that, you know, the Spanish cases just go into the Spanish language team, but obviously you need to have someone who's got the right languages. Right. And uh, occasionally the Spanish team might be overwhelmed with cases, so someone in the English team who can speak Spanish might take it. But essentially, as a first um, sort of principle, it goes into the language team. And we have two Spanish language teams, one English and one French. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, you still have a few French-speaking cases yeah. if from yeah. time to time. Yeah, it's the least of English, Spanish, and French, but there are still a number, yeah. Do you know on top of your head, this is very marginal, we were talking about this on another podcast, <laughs> if there have been other languages used, because yeah. it, it's formally possible if you approve it, or if the president of the world, I can't remember. No, it's formally possible if um, the parties agree and the tribunal agrees, and they have to check with us, obviously, to make sure that we can service exactly. in whatever right. language. Uh, but it's not something that we would ever turn down. The question is just making sure we have the capacity to service in the language. And there have been a number, I think there have been Portuguese, um, What's normally the case is not that the case is fully held in a different language, but that you have some interesting combination of translation. So, you know, that you need to translate from Japanese to Russian. So can we find a translator who's proficient in both of those? Mm -hmm. That's more often the language issue that's, that's, uh, that arises. <laughs> no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, 
and ask you, maybe it's your Canadian background, but you're so approachable and, <laughs> and nice and humble, but you are also, some would say, the, one of the most powerful people in the business. Because you, you you lead the biggest organization and you're I mean, you're here at Arica, <laughs> and you're everywhere. How do you view your role? Are you a humble civil, <laughs> civil servant like Aaron Brock has claimed to be? <laughs> yeah, you know that's my that's my tradition. I mean, I my early career was in government, so your your job is to do your job and um, not take it personally and just to put your best into it. So I don't know. Maybe I sound too Canadian, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, I would, my children would laugh if they even heard you say that question. So it keeps you, it keeps you grounded, if nothing else. But no, I mean, it's an extraordinary job. It is the most interesting job, and I meet the most amazing people. So uh, I'm just really privileged to do this. Really. So to play off the not taking it personally, then you can't take personally the denunciation that has happened in the couple of <laughs> American countries. No. It's, it's not on you. No, exactly. <laughs> Please. Um, no, and in, and in terms of denunciation, we from the start basically said that's a sovereign prerogative. The doors are always open if you would like to come back, but we respect the sovereign prerogative. And very important, we had a number of cases um, with respondents from case, from states that denounced and extremely important for us to make sure that they didn't feel they were ever at any disadvantage of and um, all three of those states have told us that they were really very pleased and they noticed that which is good that I mean that's being professional frankly and you wouldn't expect anything else and I'm showing my own ignorance on this but is there a negotiation nego not a negotiation but a discussion that happens or you just get an email one day and it's like yeah you get an email one day. <laughs> yeah exactly sometimes you get a heads up and we obviously try to follow what's happening so you often hear discussion in the media or other so you can't ever say it comes totally out of the blue but right in terms of when it is happens. there a community in in dc of people because I, I was temporarily in washington dc and i was trying to figure out who at the swedish embassy was like running point on exit stuff and it yeah. was very hard and given the way washington dc works generally i would imagine that there's also this the grapevine through which you would hear things like the uh, potential possible denunciation exactly. or, or other positions or is it just still even given the recent development still too remote for most states to have actual people on it's really interesting and it, it, probably the biggest single factor there is if states have one or more cases their embassy will be more or less engaged um, but again this was part of our whole trying to engage states and making sure that we knew that they were getting our our information that they were clued in that they knew where to ask questions if they had questions so one of the things that we started doing was before the annual meeting in October of every year we actually have a briefing for embassy representatives and specifically ask for those embassy representatives we have also increasingly started doing briefings and visiting what are known as the executive directors at the World Bank they are not the people who sit on the exit administrative council uh, but they are the country's representative in Washington they are obviously more engaged in other World Bank things, things like IDA, the IBRD work, but they are there and we know uh, very much have a direct link to capital. So we've also made a point of briefing them, telling them what's happening. Uh, once a new case is registered, we always send them a note saying, for your information, this has been registered. So trying on every front to make sure 
that they know the information. Because one of the things that's difficult is trying to figure out who in any particular government has responsibility for the portfolio. Even within governments, exactly. I think that's a problem sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's split, sometimes it's finance, sometimes it's treasury, sometimes it's AG. So the assumption has kind of been go to the sort of couple logical sources and hopefully it will get through to the right parties. Is it this that drives you the most, the, the diplomatic uh, dealing with states running an international organization stuff, or is it more the substance arbitration <laughs> nerdy, nerdery that, yeah. <laughs> that appeals to you? Um, it's both. I have to say, especially in the beginning, I would go and watch cases from the translation booth and pine to be doing the closing argument. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but increasingly, I think just the whole running an international organization is an amazing Thing and trying to come up with the strategy to make it better, to keep moving forward, to deal with stakeholders that have different perspectives. It's it's really extraordinary. So, Are there any um, plans to maybe expand into other countries and have kind of desks in other countries? We have about 16 what we call cooperation agreements where we can use the facilities of other arbitration centers. We have our own facilities in Paris in the World Bank headquarters. And from time to time, we have thought about having someone full-time in Paris. Um, And we've debated it. As nice as it is to have someone there full-time, you lose a lot of what the working style is, which is people who are, have you ever had a case where this happened, or et cetera. And there is a lot to that, actually. And so, so far, we have not done that. But you know, we certainly thought about it, mm-hmm. um, and the question would be, do you have enough cases to make it worthwhile to station Absolutely. somebody there? In, we would certainly have that in Paris. In fact, we have more cases in Paris than in Washington, uh, but so far we've stayed headquartered in Washington. And you're also part of the World Bank, I guess, so there are legal implications of setting up a, a branch of an international right. organization, immunity and other issues exactly. as well. Exactly, although certainly in Paris, since we're using World Bank facilities, there's no issue right. along that line. And we've also, uh, from time to time, when you get a request and you don't know or you can't find uh, an investment arbitration chamber that has the capacity to do it, we've also been able to use World Bank regional offices. So that's been really useful as well. And you don't get into all of those immunity questions. Right. I think we slowly, unfortunately, have to wrap up. Maybe we could ask you as sort of a final question, what's the timeline now for the for the exit reform work? You mentioned that towards the end of this year, you'll have some sort of uh, exactly. deadline for the states. Exactly. So working paper early, uh, sorry, late summer of 2018, are meeting with the states end of September 2018, asking both public and states for comments by December 28th. And at that point, we will take take them and see how much consensus there is and decide, do we need to go back for further consultations or is it all easily wrapped up? And the most optimistic scenario is approval at the October 2019 annual meeting. I think the realistic scenario is October 2020. Okay, then we know what we have to look yeah, forward exactly. to. Yeah, exactly. Be ready to send comments <laughs> December 27th. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Megan. So, I think we're we are rolling. Yes. Good. Ben Hayward. It's lovely to be here.
Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So good to have you, and I am also personally happy to have a, a serious scholar in the room, not just the business people. I think it, it takes a pretty special person to appreciate conflict of laws. And we were just <laughs> chatting before we started recording about the excitement of reading conflicts arbitral awards, but um, I guess I feel like it's a really important topic and it's really fascinated me for about the last 12 years. Is it, is it law though, if we start with a major... <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting question because I guess traditionally you'd describe private international law as part of the domestic law of any particular state but in arbitration I guess there's a lot of practice to it there's a lot of discretion to it um, particularly where arbitrators have to identify the governing law um, in an international commercial arbitration where the parties haven't done so there's a really wide discretion and that's been the focus of a lot of my research. What I was taught in law school in Sweden when I, I was very much interested in this was basically that uh, private international as we call it then isn't really law itself. It's just a, a, a method or a tool to determine what is the law. Yeah, and I guess in arbitration it's a really fascinating collision of procedural law and substantive law as well. That's the way I kind of like to think about conflicts of laws in arbitration. Um, I guess you've got so many different bodies of law interacting in ICA generally, you've got the procedural law, the procedural rules, law governing enforcement, substantive law governing the arbitration agreement, substantive law governing the merits, and I focus mainly on the substantive law governing the merits, but I guess I see the private international law rules in arbitration as part of the procedural law that ultimately gets you to the substantive law. So I guess working out what law to apply is the procedural law question, um, then going on to apply that law is the substantive law or the merits point. And on that assumption, one would think that arbitrators who are generally procedural lawyers who enjoy procedural law would also be very skilled at conflict of laws. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite the opposite. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's really varied. And um, there's um, a lot of awards out there, some published in their full unredacted original capacity and some heavily redacted. And you see a full spectrum of the types of reasoning. Um, it was actually an opportunity to read a ICC award, um, 7375, that was on the public records in its entirety while I was studying law myself. It was one of the things that really got me inter interested in this, to see an arbitrator who was very skilled in private international law actually work through those issues so meticulously. But I guess uh, that's not always what you see. What is it board. usually then? Is it just, uh, we have discretion to pick the law, we choose this law? Yeah, I, I've seen all different types of approach. Um, so I wanted to mention today a book um, that Lynn Bergman's published, um, collecting together 101 uh, choice of law cases from SCC arbitration. There's a really interesting example there where there's no choice of law clause in the contract. The arbitrators decide to apply the law most closely connected. They weigh the connections to Chinese law and US law. They decide to apply Chinese law, but then go on to say, well, in the event that there's, um, we don't have proper evidence of the content of Chinese law, there's no clear statutory provision, we don't know what the relevant general principles are, will basically fall back on systems of interpretation that we are most familiar with. And it basically amounts to saying we'll apply the law that we 
happen to know best, which when I was undertaking my own PhD study, I read an article that, that postulated that kind of reasoning and pointed out how even that wouldn't really be susceptible to challenge at the enforcement stage to show how wide arbitrators' discretions were. And then here we have an actual award, an example. And I, I have to say, though, maybe being the devil's advocate here, that that's a refreshing approach because my suspicion, and as far as I can tell from reading the manuscript of the same uh, book about the SEC cases, it's also uh, borne out in practice, is that, that more or less that is what arbitrators do anyway, mm-hmm. even if they don't say so expressly themselves. It's just by way of accident, they end up applying the law that they are the most comfortable with. So it's t- you, you could argue that it's just comfortable that they, in this award, they go out and just say it. Yeah, I know, and it's so hard to know what the subjective motivations are as well. And most of the awards we see are redacted and you can't see the full reasoning. Um, I think it was Andreas Lowenfeld had an article where he described an arbitration he was in and talked about how there was a conflict of laws issue and actually said in the article, look, I, I don't know whether we worked out what the result was and then found our way to it or if we genuinely started from a blank page and then applied the conflict of laws rules and got there. So I guess there's just such a capacity for judgment yeah. in resolving these and, and I mean, to be fair, th- this is not just because arbitrators have a unique uh, discretion or are uniquely lazy, because I remember when I was doing my court service in Sweden, which is really when I w- got interested in, in this, it was always the same. As soon as there was a, a court case, some sort of litigation, it could have been involving uh, you know, an, an abducted child or a commercial case, as soon as there was an international element, all the judges just dropped it and hoped that someone else would show up. And even if the analysis written by a clerk would suggest that Russian law should apply. Mm-hmm. In the end, the judges still would prefer to apply Swedish law and find a way to apply Swedish law. And I think that's like a universal tendency. That and I guess in at least common law legal systems, when you're dealing with private international law issues before state courts, um, they will fall back on their own domestic law if the content of the foreign law isn't adequately Mm -hmm. proved. I guess one of the interesting things about arbitration is either all law is foreign law or no law is foreign law, depending on which way you want to look at the the descriptor. Um, So I guess um, in arbitration, there's no real home law to fall fall back on when you've got arbitrators from possibly three different nationalities, three different legal trainings, parties from different legal systems as well. Yeah, in the scenario in which there's no... Governing law in the clause, though. No, governing law in the Because if there is, then you hopefully you have the answer. That's right. <laughs> Although something I've been working on recently that I think is really interesting is looking at cases where arbitrators do still have to identify the governing law for one, more or all legal issues, even if there's a choice of law clause in the contract. So... Um, party autonomy prevails, and if you've got a choice of law clause, of course it would be offending the party's agreement if you disregard that. Um, Something I've seen a lot of in the awards that I've been looking at in my research are choice of law clauses that are non-comprehensive. So a good example is the construction of this agreement will be governed by the law Mm -hmm. of country X. And of course, interpretation is only one legal issue you might have. And then you've got legal issues like capacity that are outside the scope of what parties might be allowed to agree on through the law. And another thing I've found really interesting in some case examples um, is this idea of uncertain choice of law clauses. So choice of law clauses are contractual clauses. Um, They could be ineffective for uncertainty, just like 
any other contract clause could be. So another interesting example from Bergman's case book involved a case where parties chose for their contract to be governed by international commercial law in inverted commas. So when you've got to apply that, how do you work out what international commercial law means? And, and in that case, they actually remedied the issue by the parties themselves coming to an agreement about what that meant at the hearing. So they decided that it meant the Vienna Sales Convention without reference to national reservations. And that was important because one of the parties was Chinese and China had the written form declaration in force at the time. And then the UNADWA principles of international commercial contracts as well. But if they hadn't clarified that between themselves, well, how on earth do you work out what international commercial law means? I'm surprised they waited to the hearing to fix yeah, this. Yeah. Well, and uh, there's another interesting one that, that implicates the SCC, but very indirectly. It was a, um, a case heard by the Singaporean courts, the first link decision, um, and it was a stay application and the court had to decide on the validity of the arbitration agreement to work out whether to stay the litigation. But it discussed the contract a bit more broadly and there was a choice of law clause in the contract that chose the procedural arbitration rules of the SCC as the contract's governing law for for the merits for the substance and, oh. and the court had a bit of a discussion about how unusual that was and, <laughs> yeah. and, and it would have been really fascinating to hear uh, just to read the court's opinion on um, on whether that could actually be viable the court only had to work out the validity of the separable arbitration agreement so they didn't need to go that far um, but I guess at the end of the day even when there's a choice of law clause in the party's contract that they've negotiated themselves they haven't necessarily done it with legal advice, they may the parties may be of varying levels of sophistication, and the clause could be of varying levels of effectiveness as well. And arbitration is, of course, more complicated uh, typically than, than litigation because we have different laws: mm. the subs- law applicable to the substance, law applicable to the arbitration agreement, and the procedural law as well. And classification issues. Yeah, yeah and I know you guys have, have spoken on the podcast before around um, even with conflicts of laws issues about statute of limitations. Are yeah, they procedural can or I hear your, your views on this? Well, actually, this is how I got interested in conflicts of laws in arbitration. Because in of our podcast. Place. No, <laughs> because of that issue, but I loved hearing you talk about it on the podcast. So um, I was a Vismut participant. Myself, I participated in the third Viz East in Hong Kong. And in that year's problem... Uh, there was a conflict of laws issues involving uh, different statutes of limitations. And of course, we had the arbitration initiated after three years. The respondent state had a two-year statute of limitations and the claimant state had a four-year statute of limitations and there was no choice of law clause in the contract that governed that issue. Um, So for me, that was a really interesting introduction to the study of arbitration in a context where I had to confront that arbitration necessarily involves the collision of different legal systems and different laws governing different things. And of course, um, in any particular legal system, when you're working out whether a statute of limitations is procedural or substantive, um, the legal system has the standards that answer that question. So what do you do in international arbitration? How do you decide what is procedural and what is substantive in international arbitration? I think it's a really difficult question, but I guess that um, statute of limitations, conflict of laws issues is the paradigm case where we see it quite a lot. 
Um, and yeah, I guess if it's a procedural matter or if the arbitrators decide it's a procedural matter, you then approach the question in a whole different way. You're looking at the arbitrator's power to apply procedure rather than the arbitrator's power to apply substantive law. Right. And in this scenario, they're also acting in sort of a vacuum because we are. We should probably mention this because several, and by several I mean two, listeners have approached us, that uh, asked us to do a segment on applicable law and choice of law in investment arbitration, which is a different ballgame altogether because mm-hmm. then you have public international and so on. But in that scenario, at least you also have other awards to rely on, whereas in commercial arbitration, it is each dispute is its own, basically. So there's no guidance for the arbitrators. And even looking to... Uh to the Lex Arbitrae that might apply in any case, it's probably not going to give you a crystal clear definition of what's considered procedural and what's considered substantive Mm -hmm. either. So I guess there's a lot of open questions, (laughs) that being one of them. So what about the the post-award stage, which we we haven't really touched upon yet? That's also also an interesting point. It it is, and I was thinking about this after hearing your discussion about the Doctrine of Precedent a couple of episodes ago, and you were talking about, well, in the investment context there, if you're applying a particular country's substantive law, do you have to apply the precedents that have been developed in that system? And I think it's interesting to think about that in the commercial arbitration context as well, Um, the idea to to what extent is law binding on the arbitrators in the sense of what are the consequences if the arbitrators get it wrong. And I guess it's something that's had a lot written about it. Um, People have analysed it from all kinds of different angles, whether an error in applying the law amounts to an excess of jurisdiction, whether it amounts to a violation of public policy. Um, The research I'm doing at the moment is looking more at the Article 5.1d New York Convention procedural irregularity ground, and I like to think about errors in identifying the governing law as being of one of two types. Um, There's an error in inverted commas, a complaint about the exercise of discretion, or the arbitrators have actually not required, not properly applied the procedural rules that the arbitration law or the arbitration rule sets out, telling them how to identify the governing law. So I see that if a party just simply doesn't agree with the way that arbitrators exercise their discretion, um, there's no basis for challenge there. And there's a, a 2009 commentary on the Vienna Rules by Schwartz and Conrad, I think, where they say it's hard to actually conceptualise a conflict's discretion as being wrong. Mm-hmm. The discretion necessarily involves judgment. Yeah. But um, arbitration laws and rules involve varying degrees of specificity about the process that arbitrators are to follow in identifying the governing law. Um, for the research I did for my book, I looked at 134 past and present arbitral laws and rules from around the world. Interesting. And, and I found there were kind of four different categories that you could group these provisions in, um, aside from those rules that don't include any provision about the governing law <laughs> at all, and then you're in a completely different <laughs> different um, category. But you've got what's the prevailing, I guess, orthodoxy in arbitration at the minute reflected in provisions like Article 21.1 of the ICC rules, where the arbitrators are given a broad discretion, a direct choice of the law. The rule will say apply whatever law or rules of law the arbitrators feel are appropriate or applicable or some word to that effect. 
Um, and then you've got provisions that are a little bit more specific, like Article 28.2 of the Unstrong Model Law, um, which say that arbitrators are to apply the law determined, again, either appropriate or applicable by applying the conflict of laws rule they feel is most appropriate. So there's still a discretion, but it's in the choice of the conflict of laws rule. And it adds the leg of actually identifying it, it, the, the choice of law elements. Yeah, yeah, specific conflict of laws rule to apply, but then there's a discretion over what that actually is, but it adds that step in. And then there's another level of specificity again where the arbitral laws or rules will specify a particular conflict of laws rule to follow. So the Swiss Private International Law Act or the Swiss rules are a good example where you apply the most closely connected law. But even that's got an element of discretion where tribunals have to identify what the connecting factors are to the different jurisdictions and then weigh them, but there's still a specific rule um, identified. I mentioned I identified four categories. Um, there was another series of provisions, only four of them that I found, that were like the direct choice method, but they also added some objective criteria or indicated that ob objective criteria should guide that decision. So um, I would think if you've got a case involving the direct choice method, um, there's really not much you can do about the way the arbitrators identify the law. Your own actions in choosing a jurisdiction that has that approach or choosing rules that have that approach effectively consent to the arbitrators. Yeah, you're authorised to <laughs> Absolutely. But I would think under the, the approach in the model law and other similar laws and rules, if arbitrators were to disregard that interim step and make a direct choice of law without applying any conflict of laws rules at all, um, I would argue that would be a case of defective procedure because the procedure is set out in either the arbitral law or the applicable rules hasn't been followed. And then if you've got a specific conflict of laws rule, like in the Swiss statute or the Swiss rules, and the arbitrators either apply no conflict of laws rule at all or apply a different rule, again, I'd argue that could be a defective procedure case. Um, so I guess um, there's a lot of generalisations that get made in this field. One of them that we were just discussing before, um, you know, the the choice of law clause should always be applied. Another one being, you know, conflicts of laws, decisions and errors of law are not reviewable. But I think it really helps to unpack it and look carefully at what the laws and the rules require, look carefully at how that interacts with the New York Convention. I guess for me, the, the specificity is pretty important in this area. <laughs> <laughs> I would tend to agree, but I would also probably be somewhat sceptical as to whether or not that would actually fly. Yeah, I, I, and I, sh I should say I've not yet seen a uh, a court decision applying that line of reasoning. I guess most of the court decisions that I've come across that deal with um, challenges to applicable law decisions relate in some way or another to a choice of law clause, not to a situation where there's no choice of law at all. Um, so, yeah, I guess if parties are listening and have this issue in, in their award, I'd be interested to hear how it goes. And provide an expert report. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Available for consulting. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen a lot of trends with that people are now writing in their choice of law clause, they reference a specific law, and then they say without reference to their conflicts of law rules. Mm. Is that something that is emerging and that's something parties are now including? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question about whether you should actually need that at all. Exactly. It implicates the whole issue of Renvoir, whether choosing a law also chooses the conflict of laws rules of that jurisdiction. Um, one of the um, 
examples of a case where a choice of law clause might not be the end of the matter that I've looked at in my research is where arbitrators interpret it as a choice of private international law, not a choice of substantive law. Um, if you look at any of the main arbitration commentaries, they say that a choice of law in arbitration should be considered a choice of substantive law specifically and not include the conflict of laws rules and some provisions in arbitration rules and arbitration laws specifically say a choice of law by the parties is considered to be a choice of substantive law and not the conflict of laws rules but still there's a small number of awards that i've been able to find where arbitrators have actually interpreted a choice of law clause as referring to the conflict of laws rules of that country and then gone on further to apply those rules to then and identify then, the governing law. Which then in these cases end up being the, the governing law of another state. Well, the, mm -hmm. the main example I found, it, it was a, uh, a choice of Dutch law, which they interpreted as a choice of Dutch private international law, which ultimately led to Dutch law oh, yeah. <laughs> in any event. So the problem <laughs> is eliminated. But at least the analysis is rigor, yeah. <laughs> rigorous. So, so, so I guess including that kind of provision in a choice of law clause avoids any doubt, but I think it'd be quite unusual for a tribunal to interpret a choice of law clause as a choice of private international law, because it, at the end of the day, you'd hope that these clauses are being interpreted in a commercially sensible way, and when yeah. two business entities are sitting down to draft these clauses, you'd really think they're not envisaging that the conflicts rules of the country that they've chosen mm -hmm. should be applied. Yeah, and I guess there is no such case, at least that we know. It would, it would have been strange if in, in this scenario the Dutch part international law would point to, to Russian law, <laughs> despite the parties clearly indicating Dutch yeah. law in the contract and the arbitrators end up applying Russian law. That would just be yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and I contrary guess for, to the parties' agreement. I guess for me, a lot of these cases, these awards that I look at, they're, they're commercially sensible solutions in the end, but I think the method that, we gets, get, that gets us there has to be looked at pretty carefully. This is something I recognize from many conflict of law scholars and the way they think of arbitration typically. It's also that it's, it's more of a finger in the air approach and yeah, there's yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no analytical approach. Yeah. So, so, so when I was very first introduced to this area, one of the first um, papers that I read was a paper that Mark Blessing published in the Journal of International Arbitration in 1997. I thought I'd just like to share a quote from that because this is what really shaped my thoughts around this area. He said, these questions may sound academic and may seem to be of interest for professors only, but as a practitioner, I can say that they are not. They're questions of crucial practical significance because depending on their answer, they may sometimes directly determine the outcome of a case. And because this is so, these questions need to be examined and handled very carefully. And in all my research in the years following, I've often found myself coming back to that quote and coming back to that idea. It's a very good quote, and I think a very good note to end on as well. Yeah, yeah. what's this book that you're working on? So I've published a, a book with Oxford University Press called Conflict of Laws and Arbitral Discretion, The Closest Connection Test, which looks at the situation where uh, parties haven't included a choice of law clause in their contract and how arbitrators go about identifying the governing law. Um, I was fortunate enough to present at uh, Sydney Law School at a conference earlier this year on the topic we were discussing earlier about where a choice of law clause may not necessarily be the full answer and that'll be uh, coming out sometime in the next year, I think, commercial issues in private international law. And otherwise, if um, anyone out there is 
also interested in conflicts, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at LawGuyPI, so please get in touch. <laughs> and I, I should say before we wrap up as well, I've really enjoyed listening into the podcast. I think what you guys are doing here is fantastic in bringing a whole range of uh, really diverse arbitration topics and discussions out there. So thanks very much for what you guys Thank you. Doing. You're, Thank you're you. part of it now, man. <laughs> yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thanks for coming to ICA Sydney as well. Thank you so much. So we are sitting here with Hugh Carlson, who has a Swedish last name, but is not Swedish. I'm actually a bit Swedish. You're a bit Swedish. Yeah, I'm a quarter Swedish. But you're from Redondo Beach, California. Yep. So we are California natives on this side of the table. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And Swedish uh, on that side. I'll of check the table. out. Uh, we had Mark Cantor on the podcast earlier, so we're bringing California to the forefront of arbitration. Absolutely. Community. Yeah. California and Canada, I think, is together it's, they make up for like 50% of the people we've been talking to. Yeah. Probably 50% of the people who are here, the rest are Australians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but we have you here today to talk about something that you touched upon when you were a speaker here at ICA, and that has to do with IA and its intersection, with AI and its intersection <laughs> with IA. Uh, so um, artificial intelligence as it intersects with um, international arbitration, which may at first blush not have a direct correlation, but that's why you're here to tell us where you see it. Uh, involved in international arbitration. Right. Um, and and first, thanks very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. As I mentioned to you both, I've, I've listened to it, um, and I'm, I'm delighted to be now speaking on it. Um, so inter- international arbitration and artificial intelligence, um, IA and AI, uh, there's some disagreement in AI more broadly um, as to where it's going, um, just how sophisticated is it going to become. And there is a microcosm of that discussion taking place within the international arbitration community. And what do those developments mean for international arbitration? And so today at ICA, there were two panels on the topic of technology, um, technology as facilitation and technology as disruption. And so it's sort of speaking to two sides of the AI coin. Um, Is it going to make things better, more efficient? Um, Is it going to make things worse? Are we all going to lose our jobs to robot overlords? Um, Or is it somewhere in between? Um, And and there's there's been some very interesting and and robust debate taking place on that. It is an interesting topic. And we brought it up very tangentially in one of an earlier episodes as it related to a machine arbitrator. Or I thought, as far as taking our jobs, if we, you know, the investor state law guide, for example, has these trees of research and it kind of has taken the guesswork out of research. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's a form of this AI inclusion that now you have these kind of like smart um, graphs or charts that kind of simplify the research? I think it adds value. Um, I don't think that it's that is necessarily an example of disruptive side of artificial intelligence. There aren't junior associates who are sort of shaking in their boots um, because ISLG has introduced this technology, but they're probably <laughs> appreciative of it because it, it may be saving them time. Um, but so far. So yeah. far, right. No, and that's, and that's the point, right, is, is kind of the question, where is it going? Um, and, and what does it mean for what we do? Um, so uh, earlier today, I, I attempted to, to answer some of those questions um, along with my co-panelists. And one of the points that, that I raised was that International arbitration um, is less vulnerable 
to developments in artificial intelligence as compared, and that's an important qualifier, to other law practices. And, and that's for two reasons, but I guess before giving you those two reasons, just I, I want to clarify what I mean by um, the disruptive effects, right? What, what is the basis for comparison? And so disruption I defined as where artificial intelligence results in the widespread replacement of junior associates. Right? Okay. And so when that starts to happen, I think that we can all agree that there's there's been some significant disruption. And so the two reasons that, that I offered that international arbitration is a little bit more protected is because what junior associates do as compared to other practices is more complex in international arbitration. Um, that they're not necessarily putting together draft concession agreements and extracting boilerplate language and tweaking it, not in any way to diminish the value of what's being done on the transactional side, even though you know, I admittedly have relatively little understanding of it. Um, but what I have heard, having worked in a big law firm and spoken to some of my colleagues at the time, is that what a, some of what they do could benefit from automation. And I've read that in a number of articles, and I think that that's less true of some but not all of what junior associates do in international arbitration. Second, and perhaps more, I, I think, um, more salient point, is that there is less data in international arbitration. And so at the heart of artificial intelligence is data, right? Machine learning, which is a big part of artificial intelligence, is essentially reverse engineering data in order to arrive to decisions, right? You can't rely on a team of programmers to program every possible condition that, for example, a self-driving car could come across over the course of getting from point A to point B. So instead what they do is they have it reverse engineer all of the different times in which cars have successfully gone from point A to point B to teach itself what those conditions are. And so in order to be able to have successful AI, you need lots and lots of data. In, in artificial, or rather in international arbitration, because of the fact that it's relatively new, because of the fact that transparency isn't as widespread as, you know, compared to litigation, there is less data. And so that makes it more challenging for artificial intelligence to take the place of junior associates. Where else do you see automation coming into the arbitration field? I mean, besides research or even drafting, mm -hmm. um, where do you, I mean, where else could automation really come in? So it's a really good question. And I think at this point in the game, um, it's a relatively narrow uh, set of places where it could truly make an impact. And it's starting to have uh, effects in litigation that are creating um, a noticeable disparity between what is available under AI in arbitration and what is available under AI in litigation. In litigation, for example, um, you have this universe of publicly available orders and judgments, and, and so you're able with rel you know, still limited sophistication, but some sophistication, to forecast the likelihood of success based on the given set of facts. And in arbitration, that just doesn't really exist in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're kind of looking at, as you say, you know, some research capabilities, document review, I think is, is an obvious answer for where um, sophistication in, in artificial intelligence could continue to, to make progress. But I don't think that we're going to start seeing you know, witness statements being automatically drafted or clients, you know, there's not going to be like a, an Alexa app, you know, for, for <laughs> client X who can reach out to that instead of a mid-level associate. 
I was at a, pa- uh, a conference last week in Paris, and they talked about blockchain dispute resolution. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, I've, I've followed that on the periphery. It, it seems like it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, that it would ha- somehow be able to have the automatic enforcement of an award because it would be the asset would be in this blockchain data center, and then right when you get an award, the blockchain would then... <laughs> I'm doing a motion that has no relation to a blockchain, which is my Lego. ignorance of the topic. <laughs> Yeah, but then you would have a, kind of a direct enforcement. Do you think that's even close to the on the horizon? I mean, theoretically, I I don't see why that couldn't happen. I mean, right. part of part of what makes blockchain special um, is that it, it is sort of immediately immediately accessible like that. But um, whether it could be more widespread in its adoption, I think, is a separate question. Right. Yeah. So that and that was the kind of the general idea and the general question, and that's maybe something you can opine on is is this something that we as lawyers need to be like, okay, this is happening, mm-hmm. we need to get on board, or do we say this is not what we want our legal profession to do? Mm-hmm. Let's kind of scale it back. Where do you think we as young practitioners need to set our focus? Yeah. yeah. I mean. Um, I, I think that it needs to be measured. I think that there are um, there is a group that treats developments in artificial intelligence as something that um, is cause for concern um, in the in the short term. Right? We're not we're not speaking to like policy esque Skynet questions right now. We're, right. Just, we're just talking about you know what what should junior associates be thinking about and yeah. um, i i don't subscribe to the view that that there is going to be meaningful disruption in the short term i think that we should focus on what we do now and and you know with an eye to artificial intelligence but what i what i do think would benefit from some reflection and and i haven't heard very many people talking about this is how the effect of ai on industry outside of international arbitration is going to affect what we do, right? So there, there's a quote um, that the Robert Capito, the co-founder of the U.S. financial services firm BlackRock, uh, he said that Apple was not in the music industry, Google was not in the mobile phone industry, and Amazon was not in the groceries business until they were. And I, I think that that tells you something, that, that there is rapid evolution taking place, right. and and I think that there is within international arbitration um, a number of key sectors that are likely to be changed and, and perhaps even transformed in the decades to come by developments in artificial intelligence. And what that means for us as lawyers on the front lines of disputes in those industries, I think, is a question that that really does actually you know merit some consideration. Right. When you said disruption, I thought that what you were going to talk about kind of using AI to attack the system, to attack the disp- to attack the arbitration proceedings. Uh, so maybe that can segue us into cybersecurity, because that's what I thought you meant by disruption. But now I see that it was a different definition. Yeah. Heard, I don't know if you attended a panel, which we did not attend because we've been recording interviews, but we, through our vast network of, of intelligence officers out there, we, we heard a story relayed <laughs> from one of the panels in which uh, a speaker said that he is or was involved in a case that was so sensitive that it, it was all drafted on typewriters and then sent by fax back and forth all the submissions oh gosh. because of security concerns. I don't know if, if that is uh, an accurate 
really of the anecdote because I was not there. Right. But but uh, that was the the person we spoke to had that as, a, as a takeaway, and it sounded almost too extreme to be true. But it, it still I guess says something about the the caution some people involved in disputes. That was re- that's not like because computers didn't exist. And no, this is yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in 1972 they had yeah. typewriters. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. We didn't we didn't rely on the internet. Yeah. Um, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, um, I haven't heard of anything like that happening. But but nevertheless, um, as as I think you touch upon, Brian, um, I think that arbitral tribunals and and uh, the sort of body of actors within the international arbitration system um, is becoming increasingly alive uh, to risks posed by cybersecurity. Um, there's no question. In fact, I left um, to come to to this conversation now. I left a panel that was addressing. Uh, the draft cybersecurity protocol for international arbitration, um, which was literally um, just introduced, I think, this past Sunday. Um, and so there's there really is quite a bit of movement taking place. Can you take, I mean, baby steps, what, what is cybersecurity? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what is cybersecurity? So uh, it, it is uh, the, the, the discipline that concerns... Um, the vulnerability of digital systems to unauthorized intrusion. Um, Internally within your law firm or in the arbit- exchanging documents with opposing counsel? And- oh, so, I mean, if, from there you can go in a number of different directions, but um, there, there, there are um, risks and issues uh, that are a part of, I mean, really the whole process end-to-end. Um, and, and so with, within international arbitration, um, because there are so many different links in the chain. So let, let's just think about it for a second, right? You, it's, it's not is in litigation where it can sometimes be limited to really client, counsel, judge, um, and, and perhaps the overseeing institution, the court, or something like that. But, but international arbitration sees um, you can have local counsel as well as international counsel as well as a body of different experts are coming in to play a part in the process. You have um, three-member tribunals who aren't necessarily applying rigorous standards with regard to their cybersecurity. I've come across um, a variety of sort of AOL, Hotmail, Yahoo accounts, I think. <laughs> and I mean, I it's not, I don't say that just to sort of mock the fact that they may have this dated form of email. It's We've seen hacks take place, you know, for example, with Yahoo. And, On the server. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, there, there are, I think, um, sort of issues that, that are very real within international arbitration that do concern cybersecurity. And given that, and without resorting to typewriters necessarily, mm-hmm. what would you suggest that the arbitration community, and perhaps more specifically the part that, of the community that you're active in, uh, i.e. the people who represent other people in, in arbitration, do, and what, what types of steps should we you take in order to address and prevent some of these risks so there that's a great question and it's one that i think we're grappling with right now and um, just awareness is a huge part of this i think within our community um, while while there's certainly a younger cohort which is becoming more prominent um, it's no secret um, that many of the more established members of, of our distinguished community happen to perhaps have been working on typewriters for the better part of their career. And, and so they may be less adept and, and proficient in these systems. And so I think that providing 
um, general awareness as to what they should be thinking about um, in providing some scaffolding on the process that protects them from sort of downloading, you know, executable files that are kind of flicked over to them, and it's, right. yeah, um, and, and that that I think is is one of the real value adds of the draft cybersecurity protocol for international arbitration. So this is coming from a task force from ICA, the New York City Bar and CPR, and so a group of nine individuals have t come together over the last eight months, and and they've prepared a document um, that that seeks to provide more general a more general framework. For how to think about these issues, um, and in one of the value adds, I think, is that it identifies just why international arbitration um, is more likely to be targeted than we might appreciate in, in some of the more general considerations that, that we should be alive to as we go about the process. Yeah, because at, the, at this moment, and maybe 10 years ago, all it was was don't send emails to other people or use a cover on your computer screen so that people don't look over your shoulder at the airport. But now we have real situation where your computer is slowed down because someone else is looking at the files that you're looking at. Yeah. And you need to take those things into consideration. And when you're counsel and you have a client, you it's kind of a part of the shopping list of things that you can offer them or have them consider when you're starting a case to be like, okay, now we're but you're about to give us three thousand documents for us to consider for filing a request for arbitration. How private are we trying to keep this information? Right. Right. And that's something that you, a conversation you need to have day one. Yeah, I think I think best practices. I mean, uh, CPR just introduced a new set of rules, um, and, and within them uh, is a provision that that encourages um, or defaults uh, the that the tribunal should consider uh, cybersecurity issues in the first case management conference, right? And and that in addition to that, here's what that might entail. Um, and, and so I, I think that certain prophylactic measures like that, um, that, that just sort of force people to kind of go step by step and think about these issues, um, will, will matter a great deal. And, and I think when, when considering why it will matter, it can be useful to consider why is international arbitration potentially special uh, within the context of cybersecurity. Um, and, and there, are, I think, are a number of answers to that that distinguish it. Uh, from perhaps other forms of dispute resolution. Um, the, the amount at stake, um, I think, is a ready answer and what that might mean in terms of bad actors who could be looking to influence the process. The parties involved um, is, a, is another primary consideration, right? That um, it's, it's not uncommon to see some of the parties that are very active uh, within cybersecurity to also be respondent states in investment arbitration. Um, if you think about Ukraine, Russia, we've just checked off both of those boxes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, international arbitration, while I think um, perhaps not at the forefront, and, I, and I've heard people kind of come down to conflicting points on, on whether this is true, is not as, as vulnerable as, for example, um, transactional practices um, at, at certain law firms. It is still considered to be um, a high-profile target. I think Law 360 even had. Um, a, uh, a piece to that effect somewhat recently. So, so people should, within this community, certainly be alive to it. What are some, uh, can you just give examples of some measures uh, that you can take for cybersecurity? You know, you can encrypt emails. Are there any other examples you can, that just basic electronic cybersecurity measures you can take? Yeah, so, it, I mean, if I can interpret measures somewhat liberally. Yes. Um, I think being, being aware of what constitutes a legitimate email, right? And in the risks one might run by clicking on links coming from an unknown sender, even if they would appear to be 
somewhat credible, right? So um, being vigilant in terms of what you're willing to expose your systems to is, is one example of that. Working within a VPN, a virtual private network, so within a Citrix-type environment, right, can create um, what's effectively a firewall that helps prevent your systems um, from exposure to malware, things like that. Um, you know Brian, about this? You're smiling. <laughs> I, just, I just feel like he would have no idea about this being in, ac in the academic field. In addition to that, I think that there's a responsibility at sort of the law firm level, at the institutional level, um, to, to introduce best practices. Law firms um, should be um, exposing what are known as penetration tests to their networks. So um, employing what are essentially white hat hackers to attempt to break into their systems and identify vulnerabilities and then explain to them how to fix those gaps in the network. Um, all of that is, is an important part of the process. Uh, I think it's all, and it's, I, some people might see it at first glance as, okay, well, this hack is going to be a very obvious type of example, but there's also, with this Cambridge, I'm just thinking about Cambridge Analytica and how the influence can be a very soft push instead of a direct aggressive hack, right? But that's not, a, yeah, Cambridge Analytica isn't a hack. Um, right. I mean, yeah, so that's, you're, you're kind of, Oh, touching yeah. upon right. uh, a related issue, um, right. but but it doesn't it doesn't speak to um, the same way the the types of cybersecurity risks that, that we're seeing in international arbitration. Okay, agreed. Do you does it intersect at all with data privacy concerns or confidentiality concerns? I mean, confidentiality, yes, but is there any data privacy concerns that you would have to worry about? Would you, as a law firm, be liable if you're susceptible to a, an attack? that you should have taken measures against, and now you've released documents of your client? So, great question. Uh, first, <laughs> no, no, genuinely. Um, and I'm, I'm not a data privacy attorney. Right. Uh, but I've, I've you know, um, sort of with my very limited free time, um, and I'm embarrassing myself now on, on your podcast, like, to kind of... <laughs> That's what we're here it. for. Yeah. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've read a little bit about this. Uh, it, it, it seems like it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and, and even, you know, where it kind of does exist, it, it's still being fleshed out. Um, but... Uh, it, it seems like we're moving in that direction mm -hmm. um, where if, if an, an entity doesn't adopt um, certain preventative steps um, of a reasonable nature to, to protect their data and, and it is breached and lost, are they liable um, right. for the loss of that? Yeah. That's a question. Yeah, no, it, it's a terrific question and I think it's going to get increasing amounts of play. Are there cybersecurity professionals shopping their services around to law firms? I, I haven't even seen them at arbitration conferences or other contexts, but I don't work for a law firm again. I would imagine the market yeah. is ripe for that type of... Citrix is what you said, right? Well, this, is that... so Citrix is, is the, the virtual private network, but they're not... Um, maybe they offer cybersecurity services. I, that I don't know, but the answer to your question, Joel, is yes. Um, so we... Um, We've met um, and had conversations with representatives from a number of different ones. And that has been both in the context of sort of vendors who, for example, can do penetration tests, um, as well as um, providing to us sort of, they, they can come in and do a firm-wide demonstration, for example, saying, um, here are some best practices for what you should be thinking about, kind of answering your question, mm -hmm. right, about that. Um, but. It's, it's not just, I think, law firms that are the beneficiaries of those types of services. I think professional services firms more broadly and, you know. The yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, I mean, I think we're just grazing the surface of this entire topic.
Um, and thank you for coming and talking to us about this. Thank this you so much issue. for having me. And I think we got to be on board. we got to get on board with this cybersecurity stuff. I'm happy at my university. There's no need for it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone file a request for Joel's computer. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank, thank you. Joel.